Section 14 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Section 14. The Defence. Seventh Day Continued. I will first inquire whether the symptoms with which Cook was attacked and the appearances presented by his body after death were consistent with the theory of his having died by strychnia poison and inconsistent with that of his having died from some other natural cause it is under this head that i shall discuss i hope not unduly the medical evidence in this case and present to you such observations as occurred to me on the witnesses who have been called to support the view which the crown takes of the effect of that medical testimony cook died at one o'clock in the morning of wednesday november twenty first in the presence of jones it was no sooner light than jones posted to town and saw his stepfather mr stevens mr stevens went down to rugeley and was introduced to palmer palmer went with him to the talbot arms and uncovered the corpse a bold thing to do if he had murdered him the body was so little emaciated or affected by disease that Stevens wondered he could be dead, but he observed some little rigidity about the muscles. Stevens's suspicions were roused. He asked Palmer to dinner, questioned him about the betting book, got angry that it was not produced, dissembled with Palmer, cross-examined him, went up to town, met him at Euston Square, again at Wolverton, at Rugby, and at Rugeley. At last he gave him to understand that he suspected him and intended to probe the whole matter to the bottom. He resolved to have a post-mortem examination, and that examination took place. The appearances presented by the body after death were such as might have been anticipated by those who were acquainted with his course of life, his general health, his pursuits, and not to say anything hard of him, his vices and the drinking racing company which he kept his father had died at thirty years of age his mother about the same age a few years after her second marriage his sister was dead and he himself was affected with a pulmonary disorder cook had been suffering for a long time from a sore throat and bore about him all the signs and indications of having led a licentious life indeed he appears to have been about as dissipated a young man as can be well imagined. I do not mean to say that he was utterly depraved, or that he was lost to all sense of honour and propriety, but it does not admit of doubt that his manner of living was wild, riotous, and extravagant. His complaints indicated his excesses, and he was avowedly addicted to pursuits the reverse of commendable. When his body was opened, there was evidence of a soreness of the tongue. I do not go to the length of saying that there was anything to lead to the inference that there was an actual sore at the time of death, but there were follicles and symptoms, if not of a recent, certainly of a not very remote ulcer. The inside of the mouth had been ulcerated, and the skin taken off on both sides. There is abundant evidence to show that Cook was himself of opinion that these symptoms were syphilitic. He could scarcely be persuaded to obey the instructions of Dr. Savage, the respectable and very competent physician whom he consulted, and though it is admitted that he was not fool enough to go to quack doctors, 
it is very certain that he was weak enough to follow the counsels of every medical man who would venture to give him advice when coincided with his own opinion that mercury was the best thing for his complaint the spots which are the fatal characteristics of his dreadful malady had already made their appearance on his body and he was haunted by the apprehension that some day as he was running about the race-course his face would be suddenly covered over with copper blotches which would leave no doubt on the minds of those who saw them as to the nature of his disease many a man similarly affected has retrieved his position redeemed his character and become a virtuous member of society far be it from me then to say one word that would press with undue severity on the memory of the dead but no false delicacy shall deter me from the discharge of my duty and i make these remarks not in an unkind or censorious spirit but for the sake of truth and because the state of cook's health is a most important element in this inquiry it is certain that it was his own opinion that he was suffering from virulent syphilis and in this opinion the medical men who originally attended him did not hesitate to concur that he did not correct his habits is evident from the fact that within a recent period of his death he had again become diseased when his body was opened on the second examination there were found between the delicate membrane which the spinal marrow covers and is called the arachnoid and embedded to some extent in the next covering not so delicate termed the dogma mater granules about one inch in extent and i will satisfy you upon the evidence of witnesses whose authority will not be questioned that if the body had been opened in the dead house of any hospital in this metropolis those granules would have been regarded as symptoms affording conclusive explanation of the cause of death such then was the condition of cook's health a condition but partially and imperfectly revealed by the first post-mortem examination that examination was not conducted with the same minuteness and precision that circumstances rendered necessary on a subsequent occasion and the syphilitic disease was neither ascertained nor suspected the stomach was taken out and you have heard the suggestion which were it not that the court has ruled it to be of no significance i should have been prepared to disprove that palmer attempted to interfere with the operation by shoving against the medical man engaged in it the inference sought to be deduced was that some of the stomach escaped from the jar but we have the evidence of dr devonshire himself that such was not the fact none of it did escape and it was sent up in its entirety to london there to be analysed by dr taylor and dr rees those gentlemen examined it with the knowledge that owing to the report of palmer having purchased a fatal drug from mr roberts on the day of the death there was a suspicion of foul play mr stevens talked of the fact to dr taylor and with the consciousness of it on his mind that gentleman wrote a letter attributing the death to antimony dr taylor intimated dissent well if the letter is not to be so understood it is at all events susceptible of this interpretation that the death may have been caused by antimony dr taylor attends the coroner's inquest which in all probability is held in consequence of his own letter 
he hears the evidence of Jones, Roberts, and Mills, and it is but natural to presume that these are the witnesses whose testimony has the greatest influence on his opinion. He forms his judgment on the evidence of chambermaids, waitresses, and housekeepers, and contrary to the opinion of the medical man who attended Cook in his last illness, for be it remembered he had no encouragement from Mr. Jones, the surgeon of Lutterworth, a man of age and character, to form a sound decision on the case. He comes boldly and at once to the conclusion that his original notion about antimony having been the cause of death was a mistake, and then he has the incredible imprudence, an imprudence which has necessitated this trial, or at all events rendered it necessary that it should take place in this form and place, to declare upon his oath to the coroner's jury that he believes that the pills given to Cook on Monday and Tuesday contained strychnine, and that Cook was consequently poisoned. That evidence of his is carried on the wings of the press into every house in the United Kingdom. It becomes known throughout the length and breadth of the land that Dr. Taylor, a man who has devoted his life to science, a man of the highest personal character, and who stands well with his medical friends, has declared, not as a conjectural opinion, mark you, nor as a reserved opinion delivered in a private room to a few men whose discretion might be relied on, but that in the public room of a public inn, in a little public village, where everything that occurs is known, he has declared upon his solemn oath that it is his belief that Cook died because those pills containing strychnine were administered to him on the nights of Monday and Tuesday, he had himself failed to discover the faintest traces of strychnine, yet at the coroner's inquest he had the hardihood to declare his conviction that the pills contained strychnine and that Cook died of them. His evidence is neither consistent with itself nor with the opinion of Mr. Jones. He takes it upon him to pronounce positively, in the face of the world, that Cook's disease was nothing else than tetanus, and tetanus, too, of the kind that can be produced by poison only, and that poison strychnine. Such was Dr. Taylor's testimony, and on such testimony the coroner's jury returned their verdict. But, merciful heaven, in what position are we placed for the safety of our own lives and those of our families, if, on evidence such as this, men are to be put on their trial for foul murder as often as a sudden death occurs in any household if science is to be allowed to come and dogmatize in our courts and not science that is successful in its operations or exact in its nature but science that is baffled by its own tests and bears upon its forehead the motto a little learning is a dangerous thing if I say science such as this is to be suffered to dogmatize in our courts and to utter judgment which its own processes fail to vindicate, life is no longer secure, and there is thrown upon judges and jurymen a weight of responsibility too grievous for human nature to endure. If Dr. Taylor had detected the poison by his own tests, he, with his long experience in toxicological studies, would have been an excellent witness for the crown. But he has not found the poison, 
and not having seen the patient and knowing nothing of his deathbed symptoms beyond what he gathered from the evidence of an ignorant servant girl and of mr jones whose testimony does not show that he agrees with him in opinion dr taylor thinks himself justified in declaring upon his oath in a public court that the pills contained strychnine and that cook was poisoned if verdicts are to be moulded on testimony such as this what medical practitioner is safe on what ground does dr taylor vindicate his opinion he does not appear to have seen one solitary case of strychnine in the human subject yet with the full knowledge that the consequences of his assertion might be disastrous to the prisoner at the bar he has the audacity to assert that the pills which for anything he knows to the contrary were the same that dr bamford prepared contained strychnine and that cook was poisoned by it i have quoted the sentiment a little learning is a dangerous thing and assuredly to no science is that maxim so applicable as to the medical of all god's works there is no other which so eloquently attests our entire dependence on him and our own nothingness as that mortal coil in which we live and breathe and have our being we are struck with amazement as we contemplate it we feel we see we hear yet the instant we attempt to give a reason for these sensations our path is crossed by the mystery of creation and all we know is that god created man that he is our omnipotent maker and we the work of his hands yet we fancy that we can penetrate all mysteries and there are no bounds to our arrogance there has been much talk in this inquiry of the two kinds of tetanus idiopathic and traumatic dr todd urged by the court to explain the former described it as constitutional perhaps self-generating would have done as well but let that pass but how is our knowledge advanced by translating idiopathic as constitutional it is easy to give an english translation of that greek compound but the thing is to explain what the translation means what is the meaning of the phrase constitutional tetanus lord campbell tetanus not occasioned by external injury mr sergeant sheen just so my lord or in other words tetanus not referable to any known cause but in truth idiopathic means in general sense unaccountable not that constitutional tetanus is always and invariably so but that cases of tetanus do continually occur of which you can only suspect the cause and attribute it by hypothesis to a cold or some other vague accident in such cases you say that the disease is idiopathic and not traumatic the crown will have it that cook's was the tetanus of poison but it is almost an assumption to say that it was tetanus at all that he died of convulsions or immediately after them is certain and that they were convulsions similar to those from which he suffered on the preceding night is beyond all doubt but what pretence is there for positively asserting that they were tetanus at all the evidence of mr jones fairly interpreted cannot be construed otherwise than as intimating an impression that they were convulsions which partook of the tetanic character that might be and yet the malady might not be tetanus 
it is bad reasoning most defective logic to argue without positive proof of the fact that the disease was tetanus and no other tetanus in the world than that produced by poison following in the trail dragged for them by the toxicologists the crown have thought proper to impute the death of this man to the poison of strychnine it is for them to prove the fact we contest it but it by no means follows that we should be bound to explain the death on other grounds we can satisfy you that this man was assailed by any one of the numerous kinds of convulsions to which humanity is liable and that he was asphyxiated or deprived of life when writhing in some sudden spasm or paroxysm we shall have done all that can in fairness be demanded of us unless indeed the crown shall be prepared to prove that cook's symptoms were irreconcilable with any other doctrine than that of death by strychnine this they have not done and cannot do i propose to call your attention to the statements of the witnesses mills and jones with respect to the symptoms which they observed in cook on the evenings of monday and tuesday and having done so i will submit to your candid judgment whether those symptoms may not be more naturally accounted for by attributing them to convulsions which are not tetanic at all and most assuredly not tetanic in the distinctive character of strychnine but which may rather be classed under those ordinary convulsions by means of which it constantly pleases providence to strike men down without leaving upon their bodies the faintest indications from which the cause of death may be inferred you have it upon the authority of medical men of the highest distinction that it sometimes occurred that men in the prime of life and in the full vigour of health are smitten to death by convulsions that leave no trace upon the body of the sufferer the statements mills and jones are such as to render it entirely unnecessary to resort to the hypothesis of any kind of tetanus much less to that of strychnine in accounting for the death of cook regard being had to the delicate state of his health and to the continually recurring derangement of his constitution it is far safer to conclude that he died of ordinary convulsions than of any description of tetanus whether traumatic idiopathic or that produced by poison nor must we omit to inquire into the state of his mind he went to shrewsbury races on the imminent peril of returning from thence a ruined man his father-in-law mr stevens assured palmer that there would not be four thousand shillings for those who had claims on his estate from the necessity he was under of raising money at an enormous discount we may easily infer that he was in desperate difficulties and that unless some sudden success on the turf should retrieve his fortunes his case was hopeless his health shattered his mind distracted he had long been cherishing the hope that polestar would win and so put him in possession of a sum amounting in stakes and winnings to something like a thousand guineas the mare it is true was hardly his own she had been mortgaged and if she should lose she would become the property of another person picture to yourself what must have been the condition mental and bodily of that young man when he rose from his bed on the morning of the races it is scarcely possible that as he went down to breakfast this thought must not have crossed his mind 
my fate is trembling in the balance this is the crisis of my destiny unless my horse shall win and give me one chance more of recovering myself to-night i am a beggar with these feelings he repairs to the race-course another race is run before polestar is brought out his impatience is extreme he looks on in a state of agonizing excitement will the minutes never fly at last arrives the decisive moment the time has come for the race the flag is dropped the horses start his mare wins easily and he her master has won a thousand guineas for three minutes he is not able to speak so intense is his emotion slowly he recovers his utterance and then how rapturous is his joy he is saved he is saved another chance to retrieve his position one chance more to recover his character and yet at all events he will not be a disgrace to his family and his friends conceive him to be with all his faults an honourable young man and you may easily imagine what his ecstasy must have been he loves the memory of his dead mother he still reverences the name of his father he is jealous of his sister's honour and it may be that he cherishes silently in his heart the thought of some other being dearer still than all to whom the story of his ruin would bring bitter anguish but he is not ruined he will meet his engagements like an honourable man there is now no danger of his being an outcast an adventurer a blackleg he will live to redeem his position and to give joy to those who love him with such thoughts in his heart he returns to his inn in a state of indescribable elation and with a revulsion from despair he must have convulsed though not in the sense of illness every fibre of his frame his first idea is to entertain his friends and he does so the evidence does not prove that he drank to excess but he gave a champagne dinner and we all know that it is a luxurious entertainment at which there is no stint and not much self-respect that evening he did not spend in the society of palmer indeed it is not clear in whose company he spent it but we find him on the evening of wednesday at the unicorn with saunders his trainer and a lady on thursday he walks upon the course and herring remonstrates with him for doing so as the day is damp and misty and the ground wet that night he is seized with illness and he continues ailing until his death at rugeley arrived at rugeley it is but natural to suppose that a reaction of feeling may have set in then the dark side of the picture may have presented itself to his imagination the chilling thought may have come upon him that his winnings were already forestalled and would scarcely suffice to save him from destruction it is when suffering from a weakened body and an irritated and excited mind he is attacked with a sickness which clings to his system leaves him without any rest incapacitates him from taking food distracts his nerves and places him in imminent danger of falling a victim to any sudden attack of convulsions to which he may have a predisposition he relished no society so much as that of palmer whose residence was immediately opposite the talbot arms inn where he was lying on his sick-bed for two nights he had been taking opiate pills prescribed by dr bamford on sunday night at twelve o'clock he started as from a dream in the state of the utmost excitement and alarm 
He admitted afterwards that for two minutes he was mad, but could not ascribe to it anything, unless to his having been awakened by a squabble in the street. But do no such things happen to people of sound constitutions and regular habits? Do no such people awaken in agony and delirium because there is a noise under their windows? No, these are the afflictions of the dissipated and the anxious whose bodies are shattered and whose minds are distracted. Next day, Monday, he was pretty well, but not so well as to mount his horse or to take a walk in the fields. He could converse with his trainer and jockey, but he took no substantial food and drank not a drop of brandy and water. You will bear in mind that Palmer was not with him that day. In the middle of the night he was seized with an attack similar in character to that of the night preceding, but manifestly much milder, for he retained his consciousness throughout it, and was not mad for a moment. The evidence of Elizabeth Mills is conclusive on the point. The learned sergeant read some passages from the deposition of the witness in question. At three o'clock on the following day, Tuesday, Mr. Jones, the surgeon of Lutworth, arrived and spent a considerable time, probably from three to seven o'clock, in his company. They had abundant opportunity for conversing confidentially, and they were likely to have done so, for they were very intimate, and Jones appears to have been on more familiar terms with Cook than was any other person, not even excepting Mr. Stevens. Nothing occurred in the entire and unbounding confidence which must have existed between Mr. Cook and Mr. Jones to raise any suspicions in the minds of Mr. Jones. And at the consultation which took place between seven and eight o'clock on Tuesday evening between Jones, Palmer and Bamford as to what the medicine for that evening should be, the fit of the Monday night was not mentioned. That is a remarkable fact. The Crown may say that it is remarkable, inasmuch as Palmer knew it, and said not a word about it. But I think that it shows that the fit was so little serious in the opinion of Cook, that he did not think it worth mentioning to his intimate friend Jones. If Cook had not given to Elizabeth Mills a rather exaggerated description of what had occurred, would he not have said to Mr. Jones when he came from Lutterworth to see him, you can't judge of my condition from my appearance now, for I was in a state of perfect madness overnight, and, in fact, I thought I was going to die. Evidently, he would have said something of that sort, and if he had, Mr. Jones would have mentioned it at the consultation. My inference, then, is that the first statement which was made by Elizabeth Mills was the correct statement of what occurred. Palmer, in the presence of Jones, administered two pills to Mr. Cook, which it is supposed poisoned him, which contained a substance which sometimes does its deadly work in a quarter of an hour, which has done it in less, and which rarely exceeds half an hour, and we are asked to believe that, in spite of Cook's objecting in the presence of his friends to take the pills, Palmer positively forced them down his throat at the imminent peril of the man falling down in a few minutes in convulsions evidently tetanic. As in the course of the examination of Mr. Jones, the word tetanus was used, it is right that I should say a word upon that subject. The word tetanus is not in his deposition, but I tell you what is in it. 
and it is one of the most remarkable features of this case because it shows how people when they get a theory into their heads will fag that theory how they will stretch it to the very utmost and make it fit into the exact place in which they wish to put it we have it now in the evidence of dr taylor that at the inquest he sat next to mr dean the attorney's clerk and suggested the questions which it was necessary in his judgment to put in order to elicit the truth as to the symptoms of mr cook's disease now fancy dr taylor who had had a letter telling him that there was a suspicion of strychnine and who had all but made up his mind at that time to state positively upon oath his opinion that the pills given on monday and tuesday nights contained strychnine fancy the attorney-general i am sorry that my learned friend should be misled upon a matter of fact but i am told that dr taylor was not present when mr jones was examined mr shee continued then the observation which i was about to make does not apply and all i can say is that mr jones had probably in his mind's eye when he gave that evidence a recollection of what he had seen on the tuesday night he could not have seen very accurately however for he said that there was only one candle in the room and that he had not light enough to see the patient's face and that he could not tell whether there was much change in the countenance of the deceased a very important fact when the doctors all say that cook's disease cannot have been traumatic tetanus because there is always a peculiar expression on the countenance in those cases which was not observable in cook however mr jones who is a competent professional man gave his evidence and it is quite clear that the notion of tetanus must have entered into his mind because i find it in the depositions that the coroner's clerk first put down tetanus and the probability i think is that the disease did occur to mr jones at the time and that he used the word because the clerk never could have invented it then tetanus is struck out then the word convulsions is written and also struck out and as the sentence stands it is quote, there were strong symptoms of violent convulsions end quote. What is the fair inference from that? Why, that the man who saw Cook in the paroxysm did not think himself justified in saying that it was a titanic convulsion at all, though it was very like tetanus. Now I will just call your attention to the features of general convulsions as described in cross-examination by the medical witnesses in order to show that the convulsions of which Cook died were not titanic, properly speaking but were of that strong and irregular kind which cannot be classed under the head of tetanus either traumatic or idiopathic but under the head of general convulsions i propose upon this part of the case to read an extract from the work of dr copland which will enable you to judge whether cook's complaint bears a greater resemblance to general convulsions than to traumatic tetanus or strychnine tetanus before doing so however i would observe that the only persons who can be supposed to know anything of tetanus not traumatic are physicians and that not one of those most honourable class of men who see the attacks of patients in their beds and not in the hospital has been called by the crown with the exception of dr todd who is a most respectable man and who gave his evidence in such a way as to command the respect of every one but even his practice appears to be not so much that of a physician as of a surgeon 
I am instructed that I shall be able to show, by the most eminent men in the profession, that the description which I am about to read from Dr. Copland's book, The Dictionary of Practical Medicine, is the true description of general convulsions. In that book, I find the following under the head of convulsions. Quote, Definition. Violent and involuntary contractions of a part or of the whole of the body, sometimes with rigidity and tension, tonic convulsions, but more frequently with tumultuous agitations consisting of alternating shocks, clonic convulsions, that come on suddenly, either in recurring or in distant paroxysms, and after irregular and uncertain intervals. End quote. The article then goes on, quote, If we take the character of the spasm in respect of permanency, rigidity, relaxation and recurrence as a basis of arrangement of all the diseases attended by abnormal action of voluntary muscles, we shall have every grade passing imperceptibly from the most acute form of tetanus through cramp, epilepsy, eclampsia, convulsions, etc., down to the most atonic states of chorea and tremor end quote. as to the premonitory symptoms it says quote, the premonitory symptoms of general convulsions are inter alia vertigo and dizziness irritability of temper flushings or alternate flushing and paleness of the face nausea retching or vomiting or pain and distension of stomach and left hypochondrium unusual flatulence of the stomach and bowels or other dyspeptic symptoms end quote. in further describing these convulsions the article says quote, in many instances the general sensibility and consciousness are but very slightly impaired particularly in the more simple cases and when the proximate cause is not seated in the encephalon but in proportion as this part is affected primarily or consecutively and the neck and face tumid and livid, the cerebral functions are obscured, and the convulsions attended by stupor, delirium, etc., or rapidly pass into, or are followed by, these states. End quote. Then it adds, quote, The paroxysm may cease in a few moments or minutes, or continue for some or even many hours. It generally subsides rapidly, the patient experiencing at its termination fatigue, headache, or stupor, but he is usually restored in a short time to the same state as before the seizure, which is liable to recur in a person once affected, but at uncertain intervals. After repeated attacks, the fit sometimes becomes periodic. The convulsio recurrence of authors. End quote. And in detailing the origin of these convulsions, it says, quote, the most common causes are, inter alia, all emotions of the mind which excite the nervous power and determine the blood to the head, as joy, anger, religious enthusiasm, excessive desire, etc., or those which greatly depress the nervous influence, as well as diminish and derange the actions of the heart, as fear, terror, anxiety, sadness, distressing intelligence, frightful dreams, etc., the syphilitic poison and repulsion of gout or rheumatism. End quote. Do you believe if Dr. Taylor had read that before the inquest, 
that he would have dared to say that the man died from strychnine is there one single symptom in the statement made in the depositions by elizabeth mills and mr jones which may not be classed under one of the varieties of convulsions which dr copland describes it is not for me to suggest a theory but the gentlemen whom i shall call before you men of the highest eminence in their profession and not mere hospital surgeons who have seen nothing of this nature but traumatic tetanus will tell you that mr cook's symptoms were those of general convulsions and not of tetanus my belief is and i hope you will confirm it by your verdict that mr cook's complaint was not tetanus at all though it may well have been according to the descriptions to which i shall call your attention some form of traumatic or idiopathic tetanus there being no broad general distinction or certain confine between idiopathic or self-generating tetanus and many forms of convulsions the tetanic form of convulsions is pretty much the same thing as idiopathic tetanus and when we are told by medical witnesses that they never saw a case of idiopathic tetanus my answer to that is that they must have had very limited experience it is not a disease of very frequent occurrence it is true but there are gentlemen here who have seen cases of idiopathic tetanus and they are by no means that rare occurrence which has been represented to you by the witnesses for the prosecution there is one gentleman here of very large practice at leeds whom i shall call before you who attended at the bedside of mrs dove who has himself seen four cases of idiopathic tetanus traumatic tetanus very frequently occurs in hospitals in fact it often supervenes upon the operations of the surgeon but the persons to give you correct information upon idiopathic tetanus are the general practitioners who enjoy the confidence of families and who have the opportunity of visiting at their dwellings both rich and poor when they are attacked by any of those convulsive diseases or fits which heads of families and brothers and sisters are so careful not to disclose to the world at large dr watson is a general practitioner and he says in his lectures on the principles and practices of physic that most cases of tetanus may be traced to one or two causes which are exposure to the cold or sudden alternations of temperature and bodily injury it has been known to arise he says from causes so slight as these the sticking of a fishbone in the forces the air caused by a musket shot the stroke of a whiplash under the eye leaving the skin unbroken the cutting of a corn the biting of a finger by a tame sparrow the blow of a stick on the neck the insertion of a seton the extraction of a tooth the injection of a hydrocele the operation of cupping it goes on to say that when the disease arises from exposure to the cold or damp it comes on earlier than on other occasions often in a few hours so that if the exposure takes place in the night the complaint may begin to manifest itself next morning he also says that although tetanus may be occasioned by a wound independently of exposure to cold or by exposure to cold without bodily injury there is good reason for thinking that in many instances one of the causes would fail to produce it where both together would call it forth. Dr. Watson adds that, although the pathology of tetanus is obscure, 
we may fairly come to the conclusion that the symptoms are the result of some peculiar condition of the spinal cord produced and kept up by irritation of the substance and that the brain is not involved in the disease the modern french writers upon the disease hold that it is an inflammable complaint and that it consists essentially of inflammation of the spinal marrow now who shall say that these symptoms which were spoken to on the day of the inquest by elizabeth mills and mr jones may not be ranged under one of those forms of tetanus idiopathic tetanus is so like general convulsions that in many cases it cannot be distinguished from them and to such an extent is this so that dr copland states that convulsions frequently assume a tetanic appearance it is true that traumatic tetanus begins in four cases out of five by a seizure of the lower jaw but then in the fifth case it does not so commence and sir b brodie mentions two instances in which it began in the limb which was wounded now having gone so far and having endeavoured to satisfy you that the symptoms which were spoken to by those two witnesses in their depositions may be as i am told and instructed that they are rather referable to a violent description of general convulsions than to any form of tetanus let us proceed to inquire whether or not the symptoms are consistent with what we know of tetanus produced by strychnine because if you shall be satisfied upon full investigation that they are not consistent with the symptoms which are the unquestionable result of strychnia tetanus then the hypothesis of the crown entirely fails and john parsons cook can't have died of strychnine poisoning whether that be so or not will depend in a great degree as strikes me although of course that will be for you to decide upon what you think of the evidence of elizabeth mills but before i go to that evidence i will call your attention to the description of strychnia tetanus as given by two very eminent gentlemen dr taylor and dr christison who were called for the crown the other day and if you find from their description that strychnia tetanus is a different thing from the picture first given of the attack and paroxysms by elizabeth mills and mr jones you will i think have great difficulty in determining that mr cook died from strychnine let us first take dr taylor's description of strychnia tetanus i am not sure whether he stated that he had ever seen a case of strychnia tetanus in a human subject but we must be just to dr taylor he has had large and extensive reading on the subject on which he writes and it is not to be supposed that he has set down in his book what he has not found established upon respectable authority therefore although we have it second-hand in the book we must suppose that dr taylor knows something of the subject in his work upon strychnine poisoning dr taylor says quote, that in from five to twenty minutes after the poison has been swallowed the patient is suddenly seized with tetanic symptoms affecting the whole of the muscular system the body becoming rigid the limbs stretched out and the jaws so fixed that the considerable difficulty is experienced in introducing anything into the mouth but according to the statement of the witnesses mr cook was sitting up in bed beating the bedclothes talking frequently telling the people about him to go for palmer asking for the remedy and ready to swallow whatever was given him there was no considerable difficulty in introducing anything into the mouth 
and the paroxysm, instead of beginning within from five to twenty minutes after the poison was supposed to have been swallowed, did not begin for an hour and a half afterwards. Dr. Taylor further on states, quote, After several such attacks, increasing in severity, the patient dies asphyxiated. End quote. Now, I submit, although there are some of these symptoms in this case, as there will be in every case of violent convulsions, that this is not a description of the case of John Parsons Cook. The other medical authority to whom I said I should refer is Dr. Christensen. He says that the symptoms produced by strychnine are very uncommon and striking. The animal begins to tremble and is seized with stiffness and a starting of the limbs. Those symptoms increase till at length the animal is attacked by general spasms. The fit is then succeeded by an interval of calm, during which the senses are impaired or are unnaturally acute. But another paroxysm soon sets in, and then another, and another, until at last a fit occurs more violent than any that had preceded it, and the animal perishes suffocated. Now who can say that that description at all tallies with the account of Mr. Cook's symptoms? I know exactly what Dr. Christensen means by this description, because I have had the advantage of having had several experiments performed in my presence by Dr. Leatherby, which enable me to understand it. One of these experiments was this. A dog had a grain of strychnine put into his mouth, and for about twenty or twenty-five minutes he remained perfectly well. Suddenly he fell down upon his side, and his legs were stretched out in a most violent way. He was as stiff as it was possible to be. In that state the dog remained, with an occasional jerk for two or three minutes. In a short time he recovered and got up, but he appeared to be dizzy and uncomfortable, and was afraid to move. He shrunk and twitched, and after another minute down he went again. He got up again, and fell down again, and at last he had a tremendous struggle, and then he died. That is what Dr. Christensen means by his description. If the dose had not been sufficient to kill the dog, it would have been longer in producing an effect. The paroxysms would have occurred at more distant intervals, and they would have been less and less severe until the animal recovered. But if the dose be strong enough to kill, the interval between the paroxysms is short, and at last one occurs which is strong enough to kill. Just before the animal dies, the limbs become as supple and free as it is possible to conceive the limbs of an animal to be. Whichever way you put the limbs of the animal after it is quite dead, the rigor mortis comes on after a time, and they remain in any position in which they are placed. I saw an experiment performed also upon two rabbits. The symptoms were substantially the same. The limbs of both of them were quite flaccid immediately upon death, and during the intervals between the paroxysms, the animals shuddered and were extremely touchy. Now, gentlemen, I will give you my reasons for saying that, according to their own principle, as adduced in evidence by the Crown, Mr. Cook's death cannot have resulted from strychnia poison. I object to the theory of it having resulted from strychnia poison, first on the ground that no case can be found in the books, in which, while the paroxysms lasted, the patient had so much command over the muscles of animal life and voluntary motion, 
as Mr. Cook had upon Monday and Tuesday night. The evidence is that he was sitting up in his bed, beating the bedclothes, calling out, and that, so far from being afraid of people touching him, he actually asked to have his neck rubbed, and it was rubbed. I now come to the next reason why we say that death in this case did not result from strychnine poison, and I assert that there is no authentic case of tetanus from strychnine, in which the paroxysm was delayed so long after the ingestion of the poison, as it was in Mr. Cook's case. Dr. Taylor says, in page 74 of his book, that from five to twenty minutes after the poison has been swallowed, the tetanic symptoms commence, and then, in support of this statement, he proceeds to cite a number of cases. One young lady was instantly deprived of the power of walking, and fell down. In the next case, which was that of a girl, tetanic symptoms came on in half an hour. The next is a German case, taken from the Lancet, and there a young man, aged 17, was attacked in about a quarter of an hour. Then there is the case of Dr. Warner, who took half a grain of sulphate of strychnine and died in 15 minutes. Then there is the case of a young woman who took two or three drachms of nux vomica and died in between 30 and 40 minutes. Another case is given of Dr. Watson in his book, which he himself observed in the Middlesex Hospital, where strychnine pills intended for paralytic patients were taken by mistake. One-twelfth of a grain was intended to be administered every six hours, but unluckily a whole grain was given at one time, about seven o'clock in the evening, and in half an hour it began to exhibit its effects. Dr. Watson says that any attempt at movement, even touching the patient by another person, brought on a recurrence of the symptoms. It is clear, then, from all these cases, that the interval which elapsed between the supposed ingestion of the poison and the commencement of the paroxysm was much too long, three times too long, to warrant the supposition that strychnia poison had been taken in this case. Thirdly, I submit, and I shall prove, that there is no case in which the recovery from a paroxysm of strychnine poison has been so rapid as it was in Cook's case upon Monday night, or in which a patient has endured so long an interval of repose or exemption from its symptoms afterwards. In this case of Mr. Cook, according to the theory of the Crown, the paroxysms would not have been repeated at all if a second dose had not been given. There was an end of it when Elizabeth Mills left Palmer sleeping by the side of his friend in an armchair. How easy would it have been then, if he had been so disposed, to administer another dose, and to have hurried into Elizabeth Mills' room and called out that Cook was in another fit. Dr. Taylor says in his book that the patient is suddenly seized with spasms affecting the whole system, and that after several such attacks, increasing in severity, the patient dies asphyxiated. Dr. Christensen holds precisely the same language, but I submit that here there is a broad distinction between the case of Cook and that which these gentlemen state to be the distinguishing feature of the disease. I now come to the post-mortem examination. Dr. Leatherby was good enough to dig up from his garden, in order that I might see it, an animal which had been killed by strychnine, with a view to this inquiry a month before, and to examine the heart before me. 
the heart of that animal was quite full the heart also of the dog that was killed in my presence was quite full and so were the hearts of both the rabbits that i saw killed now i am told by a gentleman whom i shall call before you who is not afraid of dogs and remember that this is rather a matter for experiment than of theory i am told that the result of an enormously large proportion of such examinations and indeed of all of them if they are properly conducted is that the heart is invariably full at the same time i am told that if the examiners do the thing clumsily they may contrive to get an empty heart if there be any doubt in your minds however as to the heart being full in these cases i hope that some morning you will desire that a reasonable number of animals should be brought into one of the yards here and that you will see them die by strychnine and examine their hearts and form an opinion for yourselves i have now discussed what may be said to be the theory of these matters but i have not yet met the strong point which was made by the crown of the evidence of elizabeth mills i upon all occasions am most reluctant to attack a witness who is examined upon his or her oath and particularly if he be in a humble position of life i am very reluctant to impute perjury to such a person and i think that a man who has been as long in the profession as i have been must in most cases be put a little to his wit's end when he rushes upon the assumption that a person whose statements have after a considerable lapse of time materially varied is therefore necessarily deliberately perjured the truth is we know perfectly well that if a considerable interval of time occurs between the first story and the second story and if the intelligent and respectable persons who are anxious to investigate the truth but who still have a strong moral conviction upon imperfect information of the guilt of an accused person will talk to witnesses and say was there anything of this kind or anything of that kind the witnesses at last catch hold of the phrase or opinion that you should form of that witness the witnesses at last catch hold of the phrase or term which has been so often used to them and having in that way adopted it they fancy that they may tell it in court this might have been the case with elizabeth mills and let me point out to you what occurs to me to be the right opinion that you should form of that witness i submit to you that in this case of life and death or indeed in any case involving a question of real importance to liberty or to property that young woman's evidence would not be relied on in the ordinary administration of justice in the civil courts if a person has upon material points told two different stories juries are rarely willing to believe that person and in criminal cases the learned judges without altogether rejecting the evidence point out to the jury the discrepancies which have taken place and submit whether under all the circumstances it would be safe to rely upon the testimony last given differing from the statement which was made when the impression was fresh upon the witness's mind it cannot be said in this case that elizabeth mills was not fully and fairly examined i submit that my learned friend the attorney-general really made a false point the most unfortunate in the course of the prosecution in attacking upon this ground the coroner mr ward just place yourselves gentlemen for a moment in the position of the coroner 
and to enable you the better to do so just recollect what has passed in the course of this trial in this court recollect if you can how many questions have been put by my learned friends and by me on account of which it has been necessary for counsel to interpose and to ask the learned judges whether the question was a proper one our rules of examination are strict but they are most beneficial because they exclude from the minds of the jury that loose and general sort of information which in country towns especially is the subject of pothouse stories and market gossip and substitute for it the evidence of actual facts which have been seen and are deposed to by the witnesses imagine the coroner in a large room at a tavern just under the bedroom where poor cook died a crowd of excited villagers in the room all full of suspicion produced by the inquiries of the prince of wales insurance office about walter palmer and inspector field there and inspector simpson and all impressed with the belief that whatever the london doctor said must be true and that if dr alfred swain taylor had made up his mind that it was poison poison it was the whole town was in a state of uproar and excitement every question that occurred to everybody must be put before the coroner did you hear so-and-so didn't somebody tell you that someone had said so-and-so and so on how is it possible under such circumstances to conduct an inquiry with the dignity and decorum that are observed in the superior courts there was a celebrated trial some years ago in france in which i remember to have taken great interest of the ministers of king charles the tenth upon that occasion one witness actually proved that he had read all the pamphlets that had been published on the subject and he came forward to state what upon the whole was the result which those pamphlets had made upon his mind it is true that this was in revolutionary times but it shows to what an extent the introduction of a loose system of questioning may go i don't say that dr taylor suggested any but proper questions but you must consider the difficulties under which the coroner had to labour but i am told that he is an exceedingly good lawyer and a most respectable man dr taylor said that the coroner's omission to ask questions arose in his opinion rather from want of knowledge than from intention of course the coroner would not be likely to know the proper questions to put in such a case but when he did know them he seems to have put them he was right in refusing to put irrelevant questions to gratify an inquisitive juryman we are ourselves constantly being rebuked by the learned judges and told to adhere to the rules and not to put questions which are irrelevant End of section 14